Thank you so much for checking out the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. Support for this episode comes from Paragus Northwoods Company, located in Ely, Minnesota. Hello, this is Ted Bell with North Star Canoes. I am the president of North Star Canoes Incorporated, former president of Bell Canoe Works, and have um, about 40 years of canoe manufacturing under my belt. I have been uh, happily involved with Paragus Northwoods Outfitters and Steve Paragus up in Ely since the late 80s when I started building Bell Canoes. Steve and I have been good friends. He's a phenomenal supporter of the Boundary Waters, great person for resources of for trips where to go. He sells our canoes nationwide and somehow delivers canoes from Florida to California. I don't know how he does it. Steve and his wife, Nancy, joined our company on the Rio Grande River last February on an eight-day, 85-mile wilderness adventure trip. We're really pleased to uh, have Paragus Northwoods Outfitters selling our product. They do a wonderful job representing our product as well as other companies. We are uh, proud to support Paragus Northwoods Outfitters, the Boundary Waters, and this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern light. Welcome to episode six of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm Joe Fredericks here today with Matthew Baxley. None other than Matthew Baxley <laughs> here on the podcast. And coming up in today's episode, we're going to hear from Ann and Steve Holtz, and they live in Duluth right here in Minnesota, and they have an extensive history of travel and adventure in the Boundary Waters. And Matthew, you had the opportunity to sit down and talk with them. So uh, that's going to be the first segment in today's episode. And we're also going to hear from Joe Fleming. He's a resident of the Twin Cities area, another uh, Boundary Waters uh, passionate canoeist, just uh, really loves the region. He came up with uh, something, Matthew, that you and I have been talking about since we met Joe it's a camp stove specific for canoe country. Yeah, it's the it's the paddler's stove. <laughs> and, and so Joe, Joe stopped by here at WTIP, came to Grand Marais, and uh, told us about basically he had a need for a camp stove that was more efficient for travel in canoe country and, and came up with this idea. He's got a patent. It's called the Voyager stove. So we're going to hear from Joe in, in part two. It's truly American, really, if you think about it. Yeah. I need something. I build it, and now I share it with others. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he's you know really proud. It's uh, all the product that's used in the stove comes from America, and it's uh, another one of those great canoe country stories that we're so excited to share here on the podcast. Yep, with the DIY roots. So before we get into the episode, though, Matthew, I wanted to just take a quick break here. Uh, episode six, as we mentioned at the top, just take a moment to pause and Think about where we're at now with, uh, yeah. you know, six episodes here. And this was uh, just kind of a vision and a dream, if you will, to create this podcast dating back to 2017. Then you and I connected and we did our trip into Winchell Lake. And uh, we've really formed a partnership here with the podcast. And mm-hmm. really want to say thanks to just to everybody that's either tuned in, you know, sponsorship of the podcast, all the great sponsors we've had. And just, but the listeners and the stories, the feedback we've gotten, Matthew, has just blown me away. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I we wouldn't be doing this unless people were listening, because we talk to each other all the time, <laughs> and we don't we don't need another excuse to do that. But yeah. to to know that people want to hear this and they're listening, and 
this is valuable is really cool. Yeah, so we've heard from people from uh, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Arizona, uh, out in Pacific Northwest who have who have not only listened but given us feedback that they're tuning in and and hearing the hearing the episodes. Don't we have some regular listener in South America? <laughs> I don't yeah. know how to read this analytics stuff. Yeah, we've got somebody that's tuning in <laughs> down there. But uh, yeah, most of the, you know a lot of uh, Twin Cities people have really been tuning in and giving us a lot of feedback, and we're so appreciative. Chicago, I mean, you name it. It's it's just been a, a a really good time for us to put this together and share these stories of of travel in the Boundary Waters, the gear aspect. So just basically wanted to say thank you, gratitude, thanks, absolutely. So. Here we are now, episode six, and Matthew, your conversation with uh, Ann and Steve Holtz, who we mentioned at the top. This is the first segment. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your your conversation. Well, you know, I don't want to say too much because they really speak for themselves, but this couple has spent um, hundreds and hundreds of days in the Boundary Waters, and um, after doing, I mean, I must admit, talking with them, they're, they're not your average canoe country traveler. And I really started thinking, like, what is what is it about this interview and these people? And I came across um, a couple of things. So uh, some people call it the nature fix or the three-day effect. But basically, neuroscientists are starting to research um, the effects of the wilderness on the brain. And as best as I can understand it, uh, you know, you know, like day to day, we're checking emails. We got phone calls, we got our work, we got TV, we got our smartphones. And it's and the part of our brain that we really use the most to navigate that stuff is our frontal cortex. That's our attention. You think about how much attention is demanded from you. Well, when you get into the wilderness, no screens, no email, any of that stuff, that part gets a break. And the other parts that start to engage are like your sensory parts of your brain, these deeper sort of more ancient, um, your empathic parts of your brain, and um, just this whole different wavelength. And so uh, they're documenting this. It's really interesting. You can Google it if you want to check it out. But when you listen to Ann and Steve talk, they basically describe things in almost completely sensory terms. Uh, And... They basically, what you'll hear, they, their whole life now is oriented around their trips in the Boundary Waters. And the experiences they had in the Boundary Waters have been so extensive, up to 100 days, that they're able to maintain that even outside of the wilderness. So you're going to notice that yeah. in the interview today, which I think everybody can relate to on some level. Yeah, exactly. So it's like when uh, we do a multi-day trip, Matthew, or uh, you know, we get in for a week, whenever we have that yeah. opportunity, you know. Uh, <laughs> You kind of start to notice things a little different. You you don't uh, think about what the weather forecast is going to tell you. You're using your own sensory observations, what, yes. what your body is feeling. Either it's going to rain in a couple hours, not because the weather channel or the you know weather underground tells app. me yeah <laughs> something online uh it's because you feel it or you smell it or you just sense that it's gonna yeah. what the weather's gonna and be and you're watching the patterns and and feeling the patterns yeah totally yeah, well, whether, whether it's with the wind the sky the earth the water it's all part of it all right well let's uh let's hop into that conversation i look forward to hearing what uh, steve and ann have to say on this We're here at the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I am joined by Ann and Steve Holtz. These amazing people have spent some 775 days camping in the Boundary Waters just since 1990. It's such an honor and a privilege to have you two on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. So what about you, Steve? I moved up the Gunflint Trail back in 1989 onto Poplar Lake um, from the suburbs of Chicago. Um, I'm missing my left hand, and um, this just started my experience in the in the uh, North Woods. So I moved up here, basically opening a map up and finding the largest area of green, which represented national forests. And um, Superior National Forest is the largest green area I could find in the map, and it's what brought me to Grand Marais. It would have been close to Christmas in 1988, and uh, I actually bought the place on Poplar in uh, uh, February of 89, and 
big pile of snow on the floor and it was a unique experience moving into the into the area two things one you have no left hand no left hand i imagine that is a point of pride for you in regards to your paddling experience absolutely um i consider myself a very very experienced and good paddler and um i only paddle off one side of the boat continuously I've made my own um, gloves and straps, uh, prosthetics, so to speak, to connect to the paddle. Uh, very efficient paddler. Fantastic. Obviously, and that will become very evident in the stories that we hear from you today. I also want to mention that you've got a couple of puppies in tow, and you can probably hear them in the background. They're very excited to be in the studio, and you're going to hear a little bit of that excitement on and off. And tell us about yourself. I grew up in a family business in Ohio, four generations a little flower shop, Irish. My nature reading connected me with my Irish heritage. And when I came up here, when I married Steve in 89, it's the first I'd ever been to Minnesota, seen the Boundary Waters, I knew what I was missing from home. Mm. The water. The water. There is no water like this anywhere. And Knife Lake water is not Duncan Lake water. Indeed. So I've never been able to leave. I know you both speak of of this area and the Boundary Waters as a whole as a, a home place for you guys. Yes. Very and, much. And you've and obviously you've spent so many days. And what's the you one of the unique things that I I, I know about you is that you spent I think is it a hundred days straight. Yes. yes. That's your longest stretch of time in the Boundary Waters. Yes. Without restocking. Without restocking. That's what we're proud of. We, we went out on May 19th and didn't come out of the Boundary Waters until August 27th. In 2011. Without, without restocking and without fishing. What is your secret? What is our secret? Oh, um, it's taken a lot of experience to build up the know-how in order to make this happen this it's not something that happens overnight no and there's parts that i do like grouping meals gathering things steve does the repairs so he's very organized and a perfectionist and i am palabolous <laughs> so there's a lot of complementary characteristics that you bring to your trips that allow you to sustain for that long. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we can be thinking that we're going on this route, okay? And he's got the boat on the other side of the portage. And when I'm halfway through and I'm up to my thigh in mud, my dogs have run off, we completely change the trip. We go back without a boat. <laughs> so a lot of uh, uh, ability to be flexible out there spontaneous 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 i will look at a, he, steve will can read topography like no one i've ever encountered and i look at a map and something pulls me and then we have to try to blend those two no, we don't try we do blend. we do you do blend it mm -hmm. and that's something that is that the wilderness sort of demands of us is uh cooperation um, blending of personalities and styles for successful trips. So let's back up a little bit. One thing we talked about, and I talk about a lot in the podcast, is the community, the Boundary Waters community. And you're a part of that, and we're going to be sharing this with this extended community. How do you see yourself in the place of the Boundary Waters community, in, even in your own identities? Because obviously this is a big part of your identity. It's something that... Um without words becomes part of you. You don't have to know someone, but people seem to know if we need help, this is where we go. We take a pretty good first aid kit. It's been used by many people. We've never needed it. We don't know anything about it. We've had, <laughs> yes, you can meet people on a portage. You're connected to them. They could be from Germany. You don't even speak the same language. You don't know each other. Coming back from our 100-day trip, we were coming back Monument, 
And there was another group portaging at the same time. Going in the opposite direction. Going the opposite directions. And they're trying to just follow the rules and the regulations. And they're unbelievably polite. But you can tell that it's more than they expected. This is just a little too much. So we're telling them, go ahead. Don't wait for us. We have to go make another trip. And they're looking at our gear and their you know, mouths are dropping another trip. This will be my fifth portage. And off we go and we come back and they're gone. Day 88. How many days did we eat spaghetti on our 100-day trip? 66 66 days of spaghetti. spaghetti. Wow. Sitting in our boat on a boat seat are two big, heavy, perfect oranges. And I'd like to tell them what the if amount. they hear this, mm. that when I'm having a bad time, I see, I feel, I peel, I eat those oranges. Mm-hmm. They have nourished me more than any food could. I'm so glad you, you put it that way. Because I think these trips, for most of us, especially those of us that don't get 100-day trips in the Boundary Waters, these experiences really nourish us. They do. You know, we had an email, uh, uh, a, a note from somebody on the podcast that says that from Arizona that said, you know, I can't be in the Boundary Waters, but when I listen to the podcast on my commute to work, I'm there. And, and I think in the same way as you're talking about these oranges, mm-hmm. when you're having to deal with sort of the worst parts of life, you have those memories, mm-hmm. like the oranges, to hold. Mm-hmm. And as you said, peel and, mm-hmm. and taste and savor. So I'm wondering if we can take a moment to maybe share a few of your stories that you savor still when you're not able to be. And what do you think about? It's the intimacy. I've done river trips out west. I've gone down the Yomp and the Green. They're awesome but there's nothing like the intimacy of the encounters from human to animal, plant, water, water that I have had out there. And it's repeated and it repeats. The beauty isn't something that's off in the distance that you behold. It's under your feet. It's the cedar roots at the Hanson Knife Portage that I have never in my life seen cedar roots like that mm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. Anywhere. You're, they're supporting you. You've got a gangly pack on your back and you get out of the boat onto the sculpture that is unique in all the world. Mm-hmm. I go back to those roots often. I walk that portage. I talk to the biggest cedar tree I've ever seen in the Boundary Waters. And And there's a relationship that you feel with those things. I can tell from the way you're talking that that relationship continues when you're not there. Yes. It's changed how we live our our day-to-day lives. I have, what is it, dear? a 650 square foot house, one mm-hmm. bedroom. Mm-hmm. That you share? Mm-hmm. Yes. That, so we can go out there. Mm-hmm. You live simply out in the front country so you can continuously return to the back country. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And, and it's, it's probably taught you how to do that. And to keep those essentials... When we buy each other an anniversary gift, it's a tree. And they have names. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> what about you, Steve? What, what, are the, uh, what are some of your most savored memories? Um, a big one was one of the first trips that we uh, did early on. Um, I started off using a sock that I tied a knot in that went around my canoe paddle and then I'd slid my arm up through the sock in the opposite direction and would twist in order to tighten it up in order to paddle on on the left side. And um, somehow or another in the process of getting out of the boat, the sock had fallen into the lake and it was soaking wet. 
So one of the rare times, this again was real early on, it must have been in 1990 or so, and um, we went ashore and we, we lit a fire, which is something we don't often do. Um, and Anne said, I'll dry your sock out for you. So she took a stick and uh, put the sock on the, on the stick and started holding it around the fire. And she got it too close, and Uh-oh. the thing started on fire. And so she's saying, oh, whirling it in the air to try to, and it's just, it just ignited. So I had to take the sock and throw it in the lake to put it out. <laughs> that was that. So the, the, the water played with us there. But mm-hmm. uh, so many environments where the water is just such a, uh, a, a powerful draw. Um, uh, something that we talked about um, in our walk yesterday was uh, the Mora River um, uh, flowing portage. into Little Sag mm-hmm. and the portage along there, and just the the um, the sense of the water again and and its flow. We did that portage uh, uh, from Round Lake. We worked our way back through and down to Sag, and uh, later that summer we went from Sag up to Sagangans in the Quetico, and we didn't realize at the time that we were actually following the water downstream all summer long. Wow. It was um, a very amazing. Literally going with the flow. Literally going with the flow. Yeah. And, and that you carry that with you. I do. Yeah, that feeling. The feeling, the 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 look of the water, the taste of the water, mm-hmm. um, uh, the sound. You know, in, in a time where it's hard to have a human connection with land uh, because of so many reasons, you know, um, development and and that sort of thing, it's hard to find a, a spot to to build a connection with the place. But the boundary waters is there. Mm-hmm. And it's all, and and is uh, hopefully will always be there, mm-hmm. so that we can continue to build a connection with that. And you guys seem to embody that, that connection with land, and uh, water, all mm-hmm. of the above. On our six-week trip, we didn't have that was two thousand five. Our first six-week trip, we didn't so much have a route, but particular areas that we wanted to get to. And within those areas, there were two campsites and a Bay and Knife Lake that we've always wanted to stay in, never able to get. They're always taken? There are, there's pro- always somebody always probably there. Probably a lot of people feel the same way you do. So, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we got the first site. We're having a wonderful time. We're watching for the second site to open up. And I keep saying to Steve, they're playing radios over there. At that time, I wouldn't believe that anyone would carry radios into the Boundary Waters, but they do. Mm-hmm. And in Central Knife Lake, in I'm Central telling her there's Knife, no radios. There's, no one's going to get reception. No, and, and different things were going on, and we would paddle by, and we'd wave at them, and they would just very stoically, they were older people, just stare back at us. So we'd go on our way. And, you know, we're clicking off the days now. Now it's a siege. It's day 11. We're waiting for another campsite. <laughs> they haven't okay? vacated the they camp haven't, yet. And so they're you're, watching us. You're holding out, seeing when for they're the, going to take off. They appear to be holding out, watching you. Watching us. <laughs> it's a stalemate of sorts. On day 11, a man and a woman paddle up into our campsite. At first, they start with small talk. We've just been out to the island. We're picking blueberries. You want some blueberries. We got extra fish. You want fish. And after we're, you know, break the norms, the first hellos, Hellos. the man's tone changed. And he looked at me and he said, you work for the government? I said, no, we don't work for the government. He says, do you have friends that work for the government? We said, we don't have any friends around here all the time. He says, Forest Service is chasing me. Would you switch campsites with us? No. No kidding. And it turned out that these were old barrel campers who, the barrel. Can you explain the barrel? The barrel Help me, Steve, when it's you a, can. It's, a, it's like a 50-gallon drum. 55-gallon steel it's, drum. With it's a... the 50s bear catch, okay? So you put everything in the drum and you clamp the lid on, the bear can't get it. 
You need two boats, two canoes lashed together to flip one of these barrels over. Um, And they had multiple barrels. They had multiples. And and they were using it for their food food to keep, you know. Keep bears out of their food. They were good campers. But this this was another era. Right. This was a time Before the Boundary Waters. This was before the Boundary Waters. They started camping like this in the 1950s out there. Yes, and at that time, different people owned the camps, and people would come from the outside in and stay at particular camps. And the camp we were moving to that they were in, they had told us that someone named Pete Cosme. This was Pete Cosme's camp. And we went over there to help them because I dare say they were in their 70s. I'm only in my 60s now, and it's hard. We get there, and it's like nothing I've ever seen in the Boundary Waters. They have a huge screen house with big poles like you'd set up in your backyard. So they were kind of living. They were sort of taking up a residence. Yes, their permit, I think, went from July to October. (laughs) (laughs) So you... so you're helping them move their camp. Yes. And you're getting that campsite that you had been waiting for, which I'm sure you were very happy to help with. Exactly. Yes. And, and so I have to ask, why was he being chased by the Forest Service? You're only allowed to stay in a campsite gotcha. today for two weeks. And they and how long had they been there? We I don't, don't know. know and didn't ask. <laughs> but they were excellent. From the sounds of it, it was pr- they had th- But this gets funnier now. Okay. A ways back there were two rangers and Kuishui named Nancy. We always called them the two Nancys. Well, the one Nancy was chasing Ray, and there was a larger group, but someone had broken their leg, and it took the rest of the group to get them out and get them to care. So it was only Ray and Loretta. Loretta was Dorothy Moulter, the root beer lady's niece. These people had come to Knife Lake every year since the 50s. Wow. We had instant rapport. We helped them move. How many boatloads did it take to get? Seven boatloads to move them to the (laughs) next camp. That's another level of camping. And we have an Itasca. It's a big boat. Yes, it is. So we help them. Ray cooks for everyone, okay? Here's something interesting. Matthew, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen in the Boundary Waters? That's a great question. I don't have a ready answer for that. I do. We do. Yeah. <laughs> a propane refrigerator. <laughs> Ray had Ray had a propane refrigerator from the 1970s. That he tinkers with constantly. Keeping it running. And before bed at night, they have ice water from the ice from their propane refrigerator that he is drug for eons. Well, and the, the meals they cooked waters. us, she said, Anne started talking about the meals, because, I mean, we had whipped cream and custard and, <laughs> uh, you know, things that you just can't have can't in the Boundary have. Waters. But wait, there's, this story gets better. In the middle of all this, there is a forest fire right at the narrows between Knife and Little Knife on the Canadian shore. And you're watching this. Well, we're there in the middle of it. We have not been known to run from forest fires, which I don't recommend anyone do what we do. So while the one Nancy from Kwishui is chasing this group and we get them all moving in the new camp, the second Nancy forest ranger from Kwishui comes along with, um, you know, how they have their helpers, their, what do you call volunteers. them? They're volunteers. Jenny. So the second Nancy and Jenny come along and they're camping now with Ray and Loretta and Ray's <laughs> cooking for them. They're digging them a new latrine and um, watching the forest fire because it's a Canadian fire that isn't being fought. They're just letting it burn. It's a ground fire. But it was so hot. Mm-hmm. At that time, it's the only experience I've ever had where the trees were popping like they do in the cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. It sounded like old-fashioned wooden screen doors, how they used to bang in the summertime. 
Slamming shut. Slamming. Never experienced that since. That sounds pretty eerie. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the craziest things you've ever seen in the Boundary Waters. The propane refrigerator. Right. And it yes. sounds like that whole experience was pretty unusual. It was literally being in another time. Right. You had to step back. You have to step back mm-hmm. in, to absorb it, to appreciate it. Right. I mean, Ray has more pots and pans in the Boundary Waters than I have in my kitchen. Right. You know? Cast and iron. And he was a, gr- yes, cast iron, um, which we always go through this ritual. The biggest fight Steve and I have ever had, and it's been ongoing in the 29 years of our marriage, is how much oatmeal do we pack <laughs> for the sounds summer sounds like i yes. could get heated yes so it's <laughs> it's you know getting that oatmeal amount it just an exact amount um and then seeing his like steve says the cast iron skillets oh my god he was a great cook I mean, for supper, you'd have spaghetti and fresh mushrooms and fish. And then, as I say, he'd put in salad because there are other groups that knew these groups. And every time they came through, Ray had given him a grocery list. You know, he had sent Loretta to what the Z up to get Mm -hmm. peppered bacon. He was so excited. I, I also want to hear a little bit more, uh, you know, I know we don't have a ton of time left. I want to hear a little bit more about, Steve, about your adaptations that you've developed for paddling. Because I think that's a unique thing that you've sort of worked your process. You s- talked about starting with the sock. And I know you're not still paddling with a sock. No. No. Um, uh, part of the problem with uh, the sock and my initial um, paddling straps was that I, I would develop blisters. And so blisters were a big problem. And so I've, uh, I create, uh, created a leather glove um, that ba- I call it a glove. It goes on the end of my arm. Um, but I, it has um, shoelace-like threading on it. So I can pull it up tight and tie it off and keep it on well. And then my paddling strap is made a little bit larger in diameter now to go over the top of the glove. So everything needs to be fit together that way. The paddling strap is... Um, I don't know, it's probably a, a nearly 3 sixteenths inch thick leather that's two inches wide that is riveted in a loop and then cut a little bit narrower right around the paddle itself and then water molded to, to fit the paddle at a 90 degree angle to my arm. And so I can change the direction of the paddle in order to do J strokes or other feathering strokes and um, wow. slide my arm up and down as need be to how deep I need the paddle or how deep the boat is because... If we're a thousand pounds in the water, the water's pretty close to the <laughs> right. gunnels. Uh-huh. Um, otherwise, uh, I might need to reach a little deeper if the boat's floating high. So, mm-hmm. it's just a really and flexible, he... adaptive system. And then I don't know how many different ones I have now. I bring spares and mm-hmm. switch them up. And <laughs> but Steve has state of the art prosthetics, and they do not work the way his method does. They're no, awkward, no, they're, they're, they're heavy, they're... They put the paddle out ba- past the end pa- of my arm, so mm. proprioception mm. becomes a bigger problem. With my strap, the paddle is actually on my arm, so I can feel it. Oh, sure. Or with so the prosthetic, contact I, with it. I have contact with the paddle of my arm, or mm-hmm. with a normal uh, prosthetic, I can't feel the paddle. It's mm-hmm. somewhere else. And Yeah. You know, I know... Um, we're getting close to the end of our time, and I know we have so much that we could talk about, but I think it'd be a, a great way to end to talk about something that we uh, have given a lot of nods to, which is the Northwood spirit. And that's something that you're both really passionate about, and I would like to hear what that means to each of you. It is so big, and yet it is so small and intimate at the same time. And you have instant connections with people. I can remember coming through a portage just a couple years ago, and we were only we were going to go camp. A group followed behind us, and it was three generations of a family, and there was one child. I'm going to guess he was 10 years old. And he's coming through, and the portage we've just done is fairly simple. And he's in his little red shark swimming trunks like he'd be on Miami Beach 
and he gets to the end of the portage and he expounds for a vacation this is sure a lot of work right. and we're just biting our lips to not you know give away the because they were going on to the next portage which was stairway portage mm, it's one of my favorites to, yes mm-hmm. yes isn't it and um Steve and I just, we talked about him and we imagined now where that effort was going to take him. Going and doing something under your own power. You get to a place that you've never been before and it's personal and it's individual. You sleep in a way that you've never slept before. Everything is different. We come out after a 100-day trip, we got in the truck. Steve, I think, was driving 35 miles an hour, and I'm grabbing mm-hmm. <laughs> the, right. the door frame. It took us forever to get down the gun flint, That's coming speed. back to the culture yeah. shock. Mm-hmm. But the Northwood spirit is being completely anonymous and aligning with that person. And we could just dream about, now what's that child gonna see? He's gonna stop for a moment. He's gonna be exhausted, and he's gonna have a moment of wonder. Mm. One morning we woke up on Knife Lake. We're in a little back bay, and I'm laying in the tent, my favorite lifetime tent of Valhalla. And this enormous shadow goes over. You know, this is, if it's anything, it's a pterodactyl. <laughs> and I said to Steve, a giant seabird has just soared over us. And of course, Steve says, there's no there giant no seabirds out here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we went on with our day and everything we were going to do later in the day. Yeah, there's a bird out there the size of a Volkswagen bug. It was uh, a white pelican. A white pelican. Absolutely enormous. Yes. Nine foot wingspan. Nine or ten, yes. Something like that. So migrating. And and fishing. It was eating in the shallows. So indeed, there was a large (laughs) seabird. When you talk about the spirit of the woods, one of the things that comes to me is the flow and getting into the woods time flow. Our early trips, it, there was always a, a little level of stress, and there, you know, a week trip. It's like seven days. You might start to relax a little. You, we started doing ten-day, two-week trips, and it was like as you get to two weeks, you realize you shed all of it, and you mm-hmm. come to this r- relaxation mm-hmm. that just didn't exist before. You don't have to think anymore. You, and it you doesn't know matter when the whether... weather's changing before it changes. It's like, well, we need to cook now. So I've talked with a few people about this, and it, it, it's almost as though the, the part of your mind that you have to have to exist in society quiets. And then this deeper awareness that, and I don't even, I don't like the word primal because it doesn't feel primal. And I like, I like to call it woods time. Woods time. Woods time is what we call it. And your, your awareness is on a totally different level. It slows down. Yeah. And what we have found is that after a couple of those two week experiences with, wow, I've just reached woods time. I've got, we don't have that anymore. When we go out in the woods anymore, you hit it almost immediately it's Mm. a whole different experience after you spent the amount of time we've spent out there it's um difficult living in the neighborhoods we live in out here because you're constantly being assaulted by sounds that have no meaning when you're in the woods every bird call every noise has this it makes sense has this cause that you just know from the inside and from the flow, from be, from being at in in that woods time, that slowed down state. It's and that um, that sense of wholeness. We woke up one morning, getting up early, four or five a.m. Sun is just breaking, the mists are clinging in the little bays around the shoreline. Steve wakes me. Listen. Across the lake on the Canadian shore, a big group 
of wolves is howling. And they go on for some time. Then they quiet. A huge group of loons is gathered right by where our tent is. And as the wolves quiet, this big group of loons starts sounding. And this is very loud, and the other is dispersed and bigger and farther away. Well, the loons call and sing and harmonize and quiet. The wolves start again. This goes on back and forth, a, a call and response, mm -hmm. a chorus. And some of them, sometimes they were calling together. Their calls were intermixed, and the intermixing of wolf howls and loons. Never heard anything so like ethereal. it. Never. You have had to make great sacrifices in order to have that time in the wilderness, in the sense of, uh, from a... Um, lifestyle standpoint for the average person you've chosen to live differently and you've chosen so that you can have these experiences yes and i think what i hope uh, our listeners can take away is maybe um motivation to get out on some longer trips and i know that's so hard um with so many demands it is a lot of work it's but a the lot of rewards work. are but bigger than I've got chills thinking about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think on that note, thank you. Thank both of you, you, Thank you, coming in. Thank uh, you for letting us share. Yeah. Because that's thank you for what the ends up coming out and growing mm -hmm. is the sharing afterwards. Yeah. Like we were talking about uh, before uh, we started the interview, that's uh, one of the, fab the, the threads that weaves um, the fabric of our community together is our stories yes. about yes. the Boundary Waters. And you've added yours. And I want to just remind everybody that we, we here at the podcast heard about you guys from uh, another person who emailed us, got, you know, here's a story idea, got connected to you. So um, I just want to remind everybody listening, get your stories in and become a, you know, it, be an even greater part of the community. Um, and we'll continue to share and continue to keep this place going. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Excellent and uh, great reminder there. Please do definitely send in your your inquiries. That's how this podcast came to be and how it continues on. But uh, Matthew, Stephen, Ann, what a what passion for the oh boundary waters! I mean, yeah, that's that's what this is all about. I think that was like the like heaviest interview I've done so far. Yeah, and, and it's like just like whoa, we just <laughs> we just went there. <laughs> yeah, right on. Well, they were uh, so great uh, stopping by here at WTIP. They brought us cookies. Brought some cookies. Like two dozen <laughs> yeah. of them. They're welcome back anytime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, really appreciate hearing from them. So thank you, Stephen and Ann, definitely. And so up next, Matthew, uh, let's turn to the gear part of the podcast yeah. here in episode six. And um, Joe Fleming. So Joe sent an email, said, hey, you guys, I don't know if this is of interest to you. He had read about, uh, we had a blurb in the star tribune about the podcast and joe read that and, and sent us an email said i invented this camp still is very nonchalant about the whole thing and we checked it out online went to the voyager camp stove web page that he's created and being that we're passionate about our you know we're not necessarily lightweight canoeists so that's not kind of our whole focus a lot of the time yet in canoe travel necessarily well it's still always appreciated but it's much appreciated um i remember you know growing up in iowa for example where i'm from mason city iowa and uh dad would have the classic coleman double burner green clunker the classic clunker yeah exactly so that was my idea of a camp stove growing up and i've seen them i've seen uh people take that into the boundary waters you I, know? I do have one yeah <laughs> I've seen you take it. <laughs> but uh, so Joe, being an engineer and just his, the way that his mind works, he thought, how can I make this more lightweight? And he wasn't really into the lightweight backpacking Primus, you know, something you'd take in Montana or something on a trip. He wanted to incorporate a double burner camp stove with lightweight canoe travel. So, And you're going to hear all about his process. But one thing that uh, I just want to make sure it's clear. This dude is not like, uh, you know, a venture capitalist or whatever. Like he's not in this to like make millions. He's just a retired engineer. 
who thought maybe he had a cool idea to offer our paddle community. Yeah. And that's what this is all about. Completely humble. And let's pick it up here, our conversation with Joe. And joining us here at the WTIP studios for this edition of the podcast, talk about some gear that's used in the Boundary Waters is Joe Fleming. And Joe is the present founder of Voyager Outdoor Gear. Joe, thanks for stopping by today. Hey, thanks, Joe. It's uh, great to be here and love to talk Boundary Waters. So yeah, absolutely, man. opportunity. Yeah, cool. So tell me about where the roots of this Voyager stove are. Well, Joe, we've been going up to the Boundary Waters for, geez, probably more than 40 years now. And uh, we got our kids through through high school in uh, in the Boundary Waters. And uh, as they've gone on with their lives, now we're left with lugging all the gear. We lost all our Sherpas. Yeah, so they they, they were the grunt work. And <laughs> yeah. Then you had to think of something. Yeah, after. they carried all the, all the heavy stuff, so all the heavy gear. So we went through all of our gear, went through the lightweight uh, ultralight packs, and we went to ultralight tents and uh, sleeping bags and so forth. And we're left with this heavy double burner stove. And... We could have gone with the little backpacking stove. We tried those, but we just didn't like cooking in the dirt. Yeah. Bending down and uh, single pot. We're not into uh, freeze-dried, boil-and-serve stuff, so we like the fresh food. And so we were kind of married to that double burner stove. And it was the last thing in our pack that added a lot of weight and a lot of volume. And so I was sitting in my uh, basement one day, and I'm like, I see a piece of aluminum over there. So I'm like, oh. I could make something a little bit, uh, a lot lighter and thinner in profile so it would pack much easier. So the next year when we came up, I had this four pieces of aluminum. I actually brought electrical wire up, drilled some holes in there, wired this thing together, dropped in a couple burners, and it worked. Yeah, so so this is where your engineering background oh, yeah. paid off a little bit yeah. for you. So this one was kind of a rougher version than what we see on the website now? Oh, certainly. Yeah, this was uh, rudimentary, but it was... It, it just worked. It was functional. Yeah. Not, it, not very elegant at all. And lighter worked. weight for you? Oh, yeah. So we had, I think we knocked off more than half the weight of a double burner. And taking a double burner down, a packed double burner, and folded down of about four to five inches, we're now down to three-eighths of an inch. Just the layers of aluminum. Yeah. That's all that's there. All right. And so what happened after this first trip? You you kind of have this, hey, this thing actually worked, and you... You wanted to spread the word or, or how well, did, what happened Well, next? when we refined it a little bit, of course, we're always tinkering in camp and saying, okay, how can we make this better and, and, yeah. and make it more usable for us? And then uh, the second year we came off the trail and uh, I started talking with the outfitter and I said, what kind of stoves do you use? Because I was trying to get some more ideas on what we could modify. And uh, she said, well, come on back. I'll show you the, show you the uh, things that we always outfit with. They use the whole range of stuff big double burners down to little backpacking stoves and so i showed her what we were doing she her eyes got big and she goes you ought to make that for others that'd be great in fact why don't you make a couple and we'll see if we can get those out with the groups and see what they think so we talked to her a little bit more about design changes that we would make and then i went out and talked to a couple other outfitters both uh, out of ely and out of grand marais and we made some additional changes and we decided to launch it and see what see what we could do. Yeah, cool. And so, where are these being built now? Where, like, are you you're out of the basement now, as far as the manufacturing side of it? Yeah, we uh, went a little bit higher tech. We rolled. A, we started uh, thinking about how we could re- reduce the number of parts. And that was a big part with the outfitters. They didn't want any parts to fail and break and have to repair and make it unusable in the site or in the camp. So they wanted something very very durable. And so we took some additional parts out and we actually riveted hinges in at the time. And then I saw another product that's totally unrelated to uh, camp stoves on hinges. We were looking at hinges and somebody actually rolls hinges into the sheets of aluminum. So we said, oh, that's a great idea. We could eliminate a part. And so we found, searched and found one manufacturer in the United States, actually out of Ohio, that rolls hinges into aluminum, custom made. And so we kicked it around with them a little bit and we came up with a, a stove this now has almost no parts to it folds down to three eighths of an inch and very robust very durable 
Yeah, cool. And so this is a, a podcast, of course, and uh, and that uh, goes on the radio too. So we're we're talking audio here, but give us a, a visual of, of if you can with words about what this stove looks like as you know when it's folded up state and as it expands. Sure. So it's as I said, it, it's down to three of an inch, and it's got a, a base, a back that flips up, and then two windshields that 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 come up. And we had originally were working on mechanical fasteners to hold those windshields up. Well, we've come up with a magnet and so we stick on magnets and those hold the side shields up and the windshields up so that you get good wind protection and then we couple that folds down uh, and we we stuff it into a heavy cordura nylon case uh, in the setup procedure you flip the back open the sides open and we drop in two actually primus burners and we we worked with the outfitters on all the different burners that we could come up with and they said use this one Mm-hmm. It's few parts. It's robust. It's kind of foolproof. Use you know, incorporate this into your stove. So that's what we we drop in. Cool. So in a sense, uh, it's taking that single burner Primus stove off the ground, elevating it, giving it some wind protection. Right. So it drops through the base of our stove, and the fuel tanks and the valves hang below to give it a little bit more stability. So the burner is all that's on the top, and we just uh, add the add the fuel canisters, the isobutane up through the bottom and then it sits on a stand so it's up nice comfortable easy to use so i don't have to uh bend down and and uh start cooking that's a, the tough part about that is i can't get back up <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so i like to uh we like to cook at a comfortable cooking height and that's why we've added that stand yeah cool the stove. yeah right on well it's uh it's an interesting idea and and uh, it seems to be working as there's some outfitters up the gunflint and over in ely that uh have this available now and and if somebody wanted to order one they you got a website going joe is that right yeah we got a, we only sell sell either through small regional shows like uh, in fact we're going up to the boundary waters expo coming up here on the gunflint trail uh that's in june and then we everything else is sold through our website so small regional shows or meeting so we can talk to people face to face uh but mainly through our website all right and what's that website that website is uh voyagers outdoor gear.com uh, V-O-Y-A-G-E-U-R-S, OutdoorGear.com. All right, cool. Well, Joe, while you're here uh, on the podcast, we're all about uh, stories and, and uh, you know, life in canoe country, traveling through the Boundary Waters. So uh, you mentioned you've been up here for 40 years or a number of decades. Yeah. Uh, what? How'd you get your start up here, and why do you keep coming back? Well, I think it all started back, uh, uh, actually, a little bit more than 40 years ago. I have a uh, my father took my me and my brother up, and uh, we were hooked from there. And in fact, we've got a a photo that we use on our on our website and and some of our uh, advertising material that my dad and I, and my brother, are up with a red plaid uh, sweater or ja- uh, shirts on, and we've got the green Coleman sitting there. And that may that always makes me think about where it was. And and, and also during that time, I s- distinctly remember the big metal rectangular food can we strapped onto our back so there's where we had the aluminum canoe the aluminum food pack and lots of weight so it was a lot of fun there Um, so we continue to go up we've taken our kids through uh, high school coming up to the boundary waters so they very much enjoyed that we kind of gave them the uh, appreciation and love of the outdoors through those trips and then my wife actually uh when she was in high school she was uh worked um outfitting and cleaning up the outfitting gear as it came back uh, she worked at a summer um, clearwater lodge it was jocko's clearwater lodge yeah. jocko nelson he was sure. uh, one of the coaches there so way back in the late 70s she was there and one of the stories she always tells me about uh, her cooking experiences well hers was on the receiving end so they cooked mainly over the open fire and those pots were, they came back black. <laughs> and so she was the one to clean the cook kits up. Oh, yeah. So that was a, a, a memory that's actually literally, uh, no pun intended, but burned into her brain. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right on. So what do you like to do on the, uh, either these family trips or, or just when you're out with some friends? Uh, what's the focus of your trip? Are you fishing or just traveling? Yeah, most of it's now uh, kind of turned to fishing before we would uh, stay one or two nights in each campsite and then move on. Now we're a little bit more into the base camping and focused on the fishing. In fact, one of my partners uh, has, as he frequently says, when we add a new person to the group, somebody can't make it, we have to add. His his question is now, did you make it clear that it's not a canoe trip? This is a fishing trip because <laughs> we're fishing Yeah, and we're in the canoes pretty much from uh, daybreak to uh, 
to nightfall cool fishing so yeah nice and what time of year are you typically getting up we actually now like to go late september so we kind of get away from the bugs and the people and uh the fishing's still very very good fortunately we've had pretty good weather but we uh we really enjoy the late fall get a little bit more in the colors and uh, it's just a great time yeah nice so when you think about the boundary waters like and, and you've done all these trips and and keep coming back uh what is it about it what's so unique that uh draws you back here as opposed to you know a trip uh to vegas or something like that well i think it's just the the fact when you when you hit that water your whole world kind of goes away all the worries and troubles and you just relax the blood pressure goes down and it's just so gorgeous to see that glistening water and that first dip of the paddle in it's just nothing beats that it's just <laughs> great get away from all the cell phones and all the distractions in life yeah nice and it seems uh too that you know cooking plays an important role around your camps as you uh you know invented this camp stove mm-hmm. kind of designed specifically for the boundary water so what kind of meals uh are you cooking out there what's yeah. a what's a standard opening night meal you know yeah pretty much we bring, we love fresh food as i mentioned earlier uh so we'll bring in a steak or chicken do the fajitas or steaks on the on the on the fire of course, then we got to follow up the, with a walleye the next night, so we're out, we're out fishing bright and early. But a lot of a lot of fresh food. Uh, we pretty much are doing now two meals a day, so we kind of do a late morning brunch, if you will, and then uh, we follow it up with dinner around dark. So it's, it's really a great time. Yeah, cool. Yeah, it sounds like uh, sounds like you guys know how to do it. I wonder how uh, how I could rope my way into one of your <laughs> one of your trips here coming up. So you mentioned uh, too, Joe, about you know, your kids being involved with this through the years and you lost your Sherpas and so forth. But, uh, what are some of your memories or like what, what happened getting your kids introduced into this, uh, idea of a trip up to the boundary waters? Yeah. A lot of memories. In fact, each trip is, uh, just full of memories that you kind of, kind of lock away, but a couple stand really stand out. And that's, this is actually happens almost every trip. So we get through and everybody's a little hesitant to move camps or, you know, how long we're going to stay and I got to get back. And the best comments that we get at the end of the trips are, Dad, can we stay a couple extra days? <laughs> yeah. They don't want to go back to the real world. They yeah. just love being away from everything and finding something to do every day. Yeah, and there's one other one that uh, kind of really sticks in my mind. This is kind of indicative of just getting the kids out there, out of their comfort zone. We, At times, we would bring a friend along or uh, one of our uh, one of our friend's children along. And I, I distinctly remember one of them, he had never been camping or not too much camping at all. And I heard after the fact he got back, when he got back, he told his mom and his mom asked, him, I say, how'd it go? He goes, mom, I never knew I could do all this stuff. So right there, it was good that he got out of his comfort zone and, you know, full of potential and full of, full of uh, energy. He just didn't realize he could do all this stuff. And it was one thing that stuck in his mind and that definitely stuck in my mind yeah cool that, that's great that you've been able to introduce uh you know the younger generation to keep it going and you know a lot of people that we've talked to here on the podcast are i wouldn't say concerned but they, they know that there's maybe a harder pull to get people away from technology and out into the boundary waters kind of close it off and, and head back out there so it sounds like you've you found some success uh introducing people to the region which is great yeah, it's been a lot of fun with that, and we continue to try to pull the kids back in, but they're, they're busy with their lives, but we'll get them back sometime. Yeah, cool. So what's uh, what's going to happen next here then with the stove? I mean, you, you said you're a retired engineer, uh, you're living in the Twin Cities. How big you want to go with this thing? Or what's the idea moving forward now? Yeah, I don't think we have big aspirations to make it, make it real big. We're having fun. I love coming up and talking about it, uh, talking to people on the trail as we meet them on the portages about what they do, and and uh, I love going to the shows, talking to people about canoeing, cooking, and and what gear they use. It's just a, a, a great time. Yeah, cool. And is it specifically for the Boundary Waters? Like, could you see it working, you know, in Glacier or Yellowstone or some kind of a backpacking trip too? Yeah, it's interesting you ask. We were just at a another show. Um, and it was kind of a mix. It was a lot of paddle sports, but there was a lot of uh, what they call overlanders. So these are teardrop camper people is one of the one of the areas. And not knowing anything about those in the past, we got a lot of people coming up with an interest in the stove. They saw that stove. They said, oh, this would be perfect for our car camping or our, our teardrop camping. I'm like, and I didn't quite understand the reason because they could carry all the weight that they wanted. Sure. It's not an issue. But they, they were very, uh, very consistent in that they wanted something small to be able to tuck into their car or behind their cooler in their small teardrop trailer. So this, the size and the portability 
is pretty attractive to that. So we're exploring that a little bit and, um, we may, who knows, maybe we get into a little car camping as well as we go. <laughs> yeah, right on. Good. Well, it uh, certainly seems to have found a, a home and a spot in the life in canoe country up here. And it uh, sounds like you'll be using it in 2018 and, and far beyond that as you continue to enjoy the area. We've been talking with Joe Fleming. He is the founder of Voyager Stoves and uh, also a lifelong fan of the Boundary Waters. Joe, great to meet you and talk a little bit of canoe country with you. All right. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity. We love talking about Boundary Waters. <laughs> and that wraps up episode six of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. Like we started off with the show saying, we're thankful to all of our listeners and all of our sponsors. And, you know, in accordance with Ann and Steve, we're also really thankful to the land and the water. Without it, we wouldn't even be talking about it. That's absolutely correct, Matthew. And we also do want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Paragus Northwoods Company out of Ely. And uh, special thanks, too, to Ted Bell for uh, his support and lending his voice there for the Paragus sponsorship of this episode. And that just about does it. We'll see you next time here on the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I just sing when I paddle Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true We're gonna get through to the other side Out in the night the waves beat the shore You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar Oh, me, rock me in my dreams You can roll me, rock me Fool if I got a chance.